0: That has been our goal over the last 35 to 37 years, is how could we create natural flavor without chemical, without voodoo, without GMO, to be able to get things in balance, to be able to produce the best possible flavor that could exist. And that's what we've tried to do.
1: All right, Food the podcast, gonna talk real fast, spitting food facts while we be when relax, how to use that salt? It is my pleasure to introduce to you Farmer Lee Jones, who is a pioneer in the farming industry. And amongst many accomplishments and awards is the first ever farmer to receive a James Beard Award and is respected by countless personalities near and far. So Farmer Lee Jones is the co-owner of the famous chef's garden in Ohio and the co-founder of Culinary Vegetable Institute which is a platform that gives innovative chefs a place to show off their skills and discover industry-leading techniques. So, Farmer Lee, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on, Erica.
1: Of course. So, you know, of course, we just want to start out with introducing yourself. And out of all things, like, we want to know what what made you become a farmer? Like, how did you get started?
0: I really think it's just in my DNA. Um, You know, my dad in high school, owned his first tractor. And we just ran across an ad where in high school he was advertising for people that wanted their gardens plowed. And he was trying to generate revenue plowing gardens back then. But uh, when I was a week old, I was on a tractor. I have a photo of me on a tractor at a week old. And- Oh
1: my gosh, you have to send that to me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'll do that. Um, You know, pretty much from the time I was like five years old I knew that all I wanted to do was work with my dad and you know, this is an amazing vegetable production area. At one point, this area had over 330 vegetable growers. Wow. European settlers came here, they recognized the amazing microclimate. We're only 2.9 miles inland from Lake Erie, and it's some of the richest sandy loam in the world. And in fact, about 11,000 years ago, the soil that we farm on was part of the lake bottom. and uh, the Lake Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the Great Lakes. Consequently, it's the warmest, and so you'll get breezes off of the lake that'll buffer the real cold temperatures. It might be cold, but it won't be freezing cold, and it allows you to extend that season. Unfortunately, those 330 vegetable growers is down to about uh, six if you count a couple of small roadside stands with oh a my couple gosh. of acres. Yeah. What caused that? Well, how much time do you have? Um,
1: (laughs) All the time in the world.
0: You know, I mean, what caused that was, if you think about, we're located 2.9 miles inland from Lake Erie, about an hour west of Cleveland, an hour east of Toledo, two hours north of Columbus. If your listeners have heard of Cedar Point, it's always on Discovery Channel for highest, tallest, fastest roller coasters in the world. We're about eight miles from there. But if you think about 330 vegetable growers in this amazing microclimate on some of the richest sandy loam in the world with Cleveland, Columbus, Toledo, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, all these large metropolitan areas of, of people. And then this amazing growing center right in the middle of it. And this is before roads and refrigeration had developed to the point where there was outside competition, where California, Arizona, Florida, Georgia north carolina south carolina had not become competitors to this region and so those farmers really did quite well and uh, as the roads and refrigeration by the mid-40s started to improve then the outside competition started coming it's basically the walmart scenario that we know today only it happened 60 years ago so one by one chain grocery stores move in pick and pay kroger uh, big bear in our region large chain grocery stores that could buy in large scale, big volume, and they could actually buy product cheaper than a lot of family owned grocery stores um, could afford to sell it for. So one by one, the family owned farms one by one, the family owned grocery stores were pushed out of business. Um, I would challenge you and every listener: go back to your childhood. Think about your hometown, Think about the number of family-owned grocery stores that were there when you were a kid that are no longer there today. I'm 59, I can remember about 11 family-owned grocery stores that are no longer there. It was taken over by large, massive chain grocery stores. The same, the same thing happened with the family farms. Ultimately, we couldn't compete because it was all about producing a lot of tons per acre very efficiently. And you know, of course, then the war came along And at one point, it was gender specific. The men were at war. The women were at home. And to win the war, the women were then tasked for something very unprecedented, to come and work and build machine guns and army tanks and submarines. And from that point on, America recognized that we were going to be a two-family income rather than one. And so after the war, then the second person in the family went to work and the food scene changed. Everything then became about convenience rather than about the quality and the integrity of the food, and we kind of lost our way in America with where our food sources were coming from.
1: Wow. I mean, it's funny you say all that. That was, those were some of my questions to come, but since we're on the topic, like, How in, how on earth did your family, you said you were working on the farm with your dad, but was it also your grandfather or how many generations?
0: No, no. Farming has been in our family for many years, but uh, my grandfather did not own the farm. He actually died at 49 years old, flat broke. And uh, no, my dad just, he knew he wanted to farm. He initially, um, you know, went to work for a very progressive vegetable farmer that was working cooperatively with about 60 other local vegetable farms because they knew to be able to compete with the larger farms, they were gonna to have to have enough volume. And so the fellow that my dad went to work for at 14 years old, his name was Charles Nichols. He invested in hydro cooling, palletization, banding and marketing of course, to chain grocery stores. High volume low margin. By having the 60 growers, it maximized how much acreage that they had available. One farmer may have 50 acres, another may have 100 acres, another farm may have 120 acres, but accumulatively, they had enough volume to be able to sell semi-loads of produce and be able to compete. Ultimately, that model failed.
1: Got it. So you had these massive grocery store companies moving in like Walmart and Uh, you know, it was appealing to the average consumer. So how did your farm survive? How did you compete? How did you, how are you one of the six that stayed still?
0: I guess we weren't smart enough to quit. We, you know, my dad ended up working for Mr. Nichols. He bought that farm from Mr. Nichols and fewer and fewer farms continued to farm. And so my dad, continued to increase his acreage. And when I was 15 or 16 years old, my dad was farming about 1200 acres of fresh market vegetable. And we were shipping every place east of the Mississippi River. High volume, low margin, semi loads, about 10 to 12 semi loads a day. I don't know if the listeners are aware of what interest rates are today. They're around three to three and a half percent. If you're gonna buy a house, if you're gonna buy a condo, three, three and a half, unprecedentedly low. If you go back into time, into the late seventies and early eighties, once again, the economy was all turned upside down and interest rates were unprecedentedly high and they actually hit 22%. Wow. And my dad got wrapped up in 22% interest with the banks. We had a devastating hailstorm, and it completely and totally wiped out the crops and the banks foreclosed on the farm. And I mean, my parents were non-drinkers, non-smokers, hadn't missed a day at church in 25 years, just poured every, everything that they had into this farm, blood, sweat, tears, dollars, everything. And at 19 years old for me, I stood with my mom and my dad, my brother and sister, all of our neighbors, all of our competitors, everybody that was there to celebrate our failure, And they auctioned the entire farm off one piece of equipment, one tractor at a time, right down to my mother's car. And then the house was auctioned off and everything was gone. And so, you know, we started back at the only way we knew how, which was farmers markets. We got a neighbor to rent us a few acres and we farmed. And, um, you know, I think that if you dig back to a lot of success stories, there's a woman telling a guy what to do. And this was the situation for us. We we were at the farmer's market. We were going to five different farmer's markets in vehicles that were pretty rough condition that maybe didn't even get a bid at the sheriff's sale of my dad's farm. We patched them up enough to go to farmer's markets. And I met a European influence chef. Her name was Iris Balin. She had trained in Europe over in France. And she came back and I met her at the farmer's market. And she was looking for products that we had never even heard of. She was looking for products grown in a way that was uh, not not really aligned with the thinking of the times. There was a guy by the name of Earl Butts. His his title was the Secretary of Agriculture to the United States. His message to the American farmers was to get big or get out. And so here was this lady in a chef's jacket. You got to understand, Erica, we knew nothing about the culinary world. So the, here's this lady telling us grow without chemical, grow for the flavor, grow for the, the flavor per mouthful rather than the tons per acre. And she said, and I believe that there will be enough chefs that will support you. That's in the early 80s. Mm. And, you know, I came back and talked to dad about it. And she was one of the things she was looking for was a zucchini the size of your pinky with a zucchini blossom on it. Well, my dad wow. had grown zucchini for years by the truckload, seven to eight inches long, two and a half inches in diameter, 20 pounds in a carton. And you put 140 of those cartons on a pallet and you sold them by the truckload. My dad was an expert zucchini grower. And here's this lady asking us to pick the zucchini three inches long with the blossom still attached. And he he said, you know what? this lady will never even come back. She doesn't know what she's talking about because I conveyed it when I came back. We would share stories from our day at the market. And she did come back and she did know what she was talking about. And she knew a heck of a lot more about it than we did. And so the next winter we asked her if we could buy an hour of her time. Well, we couldn't afford an hour of her time, but (laughs) we offered it. And she said, you're welcome to an hour of my time, but I'm not going to charge you anything for it. I'm glad that you're willing to listen and to learn. And she was actually a a chef for a brokerage firm in Cleveland, about an hour away. So we made arrangements on a Saturday and we loaded in our pickup truck and we went in and there was this big, huge conference table in this room with fancy chairs and wooden, you know, wood everywhere. It was just very, very intimidating looking. And she had probably 50 books all spread out all across this table with different pages marked at them. And she was thrilled that somebody was listening to what she had to say. And we took a lot of notes that day, probably a half a legal pad worth of notes. And, you know, what she was looking for resonated with my dad more than it resonated with me, because what she was looking for, it's really kind of a European model of fresh product, grown without chemical, grown for the flavor, where you go and get your fresh produce or poultry or fish or bread every day, but grown in in a meaningful way with product with integrity rather than the tons per acre and so it really resonated with dad because what she was looking for had existed in america it's just that we lost our way through everything becoming service oriented about the simplicity remember the frozen tv dinners
1: of course they're still Uh, there
0: you know yeah i mean that was like a big deal because mom then or dad didn't have to cook at that point both were now working two-income household, and it all became about the simplicity of how can we feed, feed the kids and feed ourselves without it being a lot of work.
1: And it was affordable, very affordable. It
0: was very affordable, that's right. So, you know, we went home, we started digging into what she was talking about, and it really made sense. We made a family decision to abandon the farmers markets. We had lost the farm, we're now five years into farmers markets. This puts us at like about 87 or 88 we're almost now getting closer to the year when you were born, but um, anyway, we um, we abandoned the farmers' markets and we decided we were going to focus 100% on taking care of chefs' needs. There appeared to be a niche available within the market that was low volume that focused on the quality and the integrity of the product rather than the volume. We didn't have enough acres to compete in that, and the reality was. You know, when you backed off of it and we looked at at what we were doing, it was all farming and controlling everything through chemical. And it really never felt right to us. If you go back to the universities, the universities are financially strapped. Who's giving them the money? Who's making the money? Pharmaceutical companies and chemical companies. Huge, huge billions of dollars of revenue. Well, they recognize that they can do genetically modified food products and you can spray the field. When you plant the field with a genetically modified product that will withstand the, the chemical and you reduce the cost for the farmers. So they give the grants to the universities. The universities do research that says if you do this, you'll increase your yields. So unfortunately, when they give the grants, there's strings attached to the research they do, which continue to direct the farm further and further away or farms further away from where we need to be. And so this really seemed like it was the right place for us. And it was about during that period that a chef um, very highly touted in the newspapers, Jean-Louis Paladin came to the Watergate Hotel in DC, very gregarious, very outspoken, very charismatic. And basically his message was to the farmers, your food is shipped in America. If you want to grow for me, you must figure out how to grow. Now, with a much thicker, much deeper accent, and he said it way more beautifully than I can. And of course, at that time, the American agriculture was just skyrocketing. Tons per acre were up. It was one of the few commodity items that America could compete in a global marketplace on. There were no unions, so the prices were low. American farmers produce food. As it relates to our income in the United States, American Farmers produce food cheaper than any other country in the world as it relates to our income. Yet we have the highest health care in the world. It's a real conundrum.
1: It is. It is. You know, Farmer Lee, you mentioned something that a lot of people see at the grocery store every single day that they go to shop. And you said something about genetically modified organisms. And what is a GMO? Like, Why do you go into the grocery store And you have this government stamp that says non-GMO and people think that that is something that they should buy other than a a product that doesn't have that. What is a GMO and and is it good? Is it bad? Should people be scared of it? Just kind of educate our listeners and, and nip it in the bud, whatever people's ideas of it already are.
0: Genetic modification in itself is not a bad thing. It has the potential to actually, in third world countries, for example, be something that could be very, very good. It could save people. It could actually create a food source because you can genetically modify to withstand dryness. You could genetically modify to withstand other environmental things. So in itself, genetic modification isn't a bad thing. But the way that it's being currently used is that it's being genetically, seeds are being genetically modified to withstand very harsh chemicals. So it's being used right now in a way that is not safe. When we use it, a farmer will plant and it's predominantly in corn, wheat, beans, commodity items. When they plant the fields, they can spray so you eliminate numbers of times through the field. You reduce the costs. It's all about producing it very, very efficiently to stay in business. So they reduce the costs by spraying and killing everything that's alive other than the genetically modified seed. And that reduces the competition for the fertilizer, for the water. You don't have to um, mechanically cultivate and they can ultimately lower the cost. But those chemicals, and it has been proven that they do carry over for a long time, they tried to convince us that once it hit the ground, it was abandoned that the chemical dissolved at that point. After it killed the plants that were coming up other than what we planted there, it basically dissolved, but it's not dissolving and it's showing up in all of our food sources. So it's a big question. The simple answer is we don't believe in the use of GMO, the way it's being used today. And nor do we use any gmos and that's 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 the way we look at it
1: see the issue for me is that everyone is so scared of gmos i agree with you completely i was educated on this when i went to culinary school but it's one of those things where just as you said how it's being used today is wrong and it is being used so that the seeds are adapted to withstanding hard chemicals i mean at that point people are like oh does this this gives you cancer this gives you cancer but you yourself at the chef's garden you do not use any harsh chemicals you do not use pesticides correct
0: that's correct Uh, the biggest the biggest way to defend against insects and diseases um, is to create healthy plants i don't know whether any of the listeners remember a show that used to be on on Sunday night. It was called Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. It was an insurance company that sponsored the show. And for us out on the farm in a rural community, it was kind of neat for us to sit around on a Sunday night and see places like Africa and other countries that we had never been to and see different species of animals. And of course, something like the cougar or a tiger or a lion would chase down a herd, for example, of gazelle. Or deer or something. And which ones did they attack? They attacked the the youngest or the oldest or the sick. And it was survival of the fittest. And insects and diseases operate under the same premise. And so they'll go after a plant that's not healthy. The diseases will attack a plant that's not healthy. We have a saying of healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people. Today, under the current model, with the way that we're farming chemically and commercially, and I mean we, I'm talking about society, not us, we got off of that bandwagon. We produce food cheaper than any other country in the world as it relates to our income, yet we have a 3,000% increase in kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, allergies, I would be willing to bet, and I wouldn't bet the farm, but I would be willing to bet you a soda pop that there isn't any of the listeners in here that doesn't have somebody in their immediate circle of friends or family that doesn't suffer from one or more of those diseases. A 3,000% increase in the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And so it becomes up to our generation and your generation to, to start and move this the other way because there's a direct correlation with the quality and the integrity of the food and the health or the lack thereof of our country. So what we're doing is we're rebuilding the soil and there is hope. And that's a really exciting thing to think that even though this soil has been farmed chemically and abused for years, you can rebuild it. And it's no different than with soil than it is with our body. Regardless of how, how or what we've done to our bodies, there's, if the body has an, unbelievable ability to be able to repair itself but we can do a lot of things to help ourselves and help the soil one we test the soil find out where it's at what's going on what it's deficient in and what chemicals have been built up in it and then based on those deficiencies, just like if your listeners erica were to go and have blood work drawn and that you find that you're super low in calcium or iron or any of the minerals were high in them you have to get a reading and find out what's going on. Then based on that, and what's really cool, and it's really about working in harmony with nature rather than trying to outsmart it. Based on those deficiencies, we plant crop specific. And out of 350 acres, which is not a lot, it may sound like a lot to somebody, but we're surrounded by farms that are farming three to 5,000 acres, some of them 10,000 acres. 350 acres is small, it gets even smaller When you understand this, out of 350 acres, 250 acres are doing nothing but harvesting the sun's energy. There's nothing that we're growing in those 250 acres that is for sale. It's to harvest the energy. Now that may sound funny, but think about it. We all get our mind around easily that we're gonna go out and harvest vitamin D for ourselves. We, We need vitamin D so we go out into the sunshine. Our body will collect vitamin D. What's really cool is different types of plants will harvest different types of energy from the sun. So based on the testing in the soil, find out what it's deficient in. We may plant clover or alfalfa or vetch or barley or rye or sedan grass, even mint, different species of beans, different types of plants will harvest different types of energy from the sun. Some of that we just plant as a cover crop. We even have a a 15 species planting that we do harvest that energy and then the next year when we go back into it and plant what we want to consume a turnip or a beet or a radish or a tomato or spinach or a cabbage or a kale whatever it is we want to grow to consume and to sell you plant that into that soil and all of that energy has been harvested from the different types of plants and it picks that back up and then when we eat it it builds our immune system it's really based around an eastern culture concept rather than a western culture. You think about the western culture of medicine and what they've been trained for the last hundred plus years. When you get sick, here's what you take, here's the drug you take to get rid of this problem. It's like putting a band-aid on an open wound. It, It doesn't work. Ultimately, it doesn't work, Erica. So this eastern culture philosophy is get the body in balance to defend against the disease in the first place. But you to be able to get the body in balance, you got to get the soil in balance. Everything ultimately boils back to healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people. What's really interesting is the more healthy we have that soil, the healthier plants we put in, the, the insects don't want to go to it because it's too healthy. It doesn't even taste good to them. They want to attack an old ragged plant that's unhealthy And that's the ones that will go after. And that's the disease. That's where the diseases will go after those plants is they'll go after the plants are unhealthy. We'll even, we have these pieces of equipment. We have a gravity piece and we'll dump, if you can imagine, 160,000 seeds and five pounds of carrots. We'll dump them onto this gravity table and the heavier ones go less distance, the smaller ones go further distance and we'll sort them into five different categories. Okay, you with me? I'm with you. So then- We have five different sizes, just in one lot of 160,000 seeds. Then we'll take a sampling from each of those five different categories. It proves out almost 99 times out of 100 that the heavier seed has a, a healthier endosperm. So we'll take samplings of those seeds. We'll put them in a petri dish, put them in a germination chamber, and test the vigor of that seed. The more vigorous the seed is, the better chance it has to be able to get its roots down into the soil, pick those minerals up. If you put an inferior seed in, it's almost like a premature baby. It's more sickly, has more difficult time taking off and it's stunted and it takes more time. You gotta think about a vegetable, it's 30 days, 60 days, 70 days, 55 days, short life cycle. So you've gotta have a healthy seed to go into that healthy soil. And then when we eat it, it builds our immune system so that we can defend against those diseases. In a core, in a nutshell, it sounds so simple. And yet we've abandoned that principle to produce more tons per acre through trying to farm it through GMO and through chemically controlling the situation. It's our personal belief that God designed a system far superior to anything that you can fake out, chemically or synthetically. I'm not trying to cast my beliefs on any of the listeners. It's our personal belief, working in harmony with nature rather than trying to outsmart it is much better way to go
1: i 'm in shock honestly, because I never thought about it like that before, just like us as human beings, the healthier the stronger our immune system, the least likely we are to be susceptible to getting the flu or the cold. We have covid and all these things that are just very prevalent right now in this in this day and age and I never thought about it like that and i'm sure many other people didn't either that. Pesticides are only necessary when you have plants and crops and seeds and soil that are not as nutritionally dense as they should be. And, and that is something really inspirational. I think that the listeners can learn from and, and maybe make better decisions when they go to the grocery store, if they can afford it, because to me, that's inspiring. It makes complete sense because that's how our bodies are. And to think that, to think that these nutritionally dense, produce that you know you're producing and the farmers who are doing it right are producing are not only good for the environment but it's good for our body right so when you're going to the grocery store and you are buying a 49 cent conventionally grown cucumber with a waxy skin versus uh you know a a cucumber from a locally grown farmer or from the chef's garden in ohio the nutritional benefit that that cucumber is providing is vastly different, correct?
0: It's unbelievable. It, you know, my dad has been really working on this. We lost dad in August. Um, oh, but I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we miss him so desperately every single day. For really the last 15 years, he has really been focused on studying soil. He met a fellow by the name of Dr. Scow, who was an animal veterinarian, and he kept noticing these Patterns in occurrences of diseases in livestock, and as he started researching that, he recognized that it was deficiencies in the soil that were creating the the problems and the diseases in the animals. And he was so fascinated by it, he abandoned working with the livestock completely and totally turned his time and his remaining years into the study of soil. And when you got Dad and Dr. Scow together, it was just like, gosh, it'd be like sitting hearing Daniel Hume and Thomas Keller and Grant Ackett sit and talk food.
1: Wow. And
0: um, it was I just, um, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and um, they, my dad learned a lot from him. And there was a symbiotic energy that, that really existed between Dr. Scow and dad that um, really was amazing. But we invested in a laboratory. We did without a lot of other things, but my dad was so passionate about really getting a better understanding of what was happening with the soil and what was happening with the vegetables and how they really did compare. Over the last 35 years, we've been focused on working directly with chefs. And the three most important things that chefs have ever told us was flavor was most important, flavor was second most important, and flavor was third most important. <laughs> it was flavor. flavor. And so And so... That has been our goal over the last 35 to 37 years is how could we create natural flavor without chemical, without voodoo, without GMO to be able to get things in balance, to be able to produce the best possible flavor that could exist. And that's what we've tried to do. But we felt like we had a sneaking suspicion that as we were getting things in balance and creating an environment for the best flavor, that the nutritional levels were following right along. But we couldn't ever really prove that hypothesis. And so for the last five years, every extra nickel that we've been able to generate has poured into a new facility. That's a a laboratory that has it has testing equipment in it that any state of the art hospital would have. In many cases, the same for testing blood and we're testing vegetables, testing the soil really breaking these down, a centrifuge even to break these down into different parts and to be able to understand what's going on. We're moving nutrient and nutrient density levels between three and 600% higher than USDA average.
1: Wow, that's incredible.
0: Now, what's, what's also amazing is, and any of your listeners can Google this, In the last 50 to 60 years, the nutritional levels of the vegetables that we're consuming have gone down by over 50%. It's a fact, that's not just me talking or rambling. This is a fact, Google it. I challenge you guys to Google about the nutritional levels of vegetables in the last 50 years, because of the way we're farming. Now our yields have gone up significantly, but the nutrient levels have gone down significantly too in the last 50 years they've gone down by over 50 percent it's pretty scary so to move these levels up to three to six hundred times higher than the usd average is really significant in us being able to defend against these diseases that occur the healthier the soil the healthier the vegetable the healthier we are it's so common sense it's like wow i could have had a v8 you know
1: (laughs) So, so far, really, what do you say to the average consumer, the lower class, the middle class, the people who make up the majority of the population? What do you say to them when, you know, they have a grocery store? Let's say they're in a food desert. Let's say they're food insecure. Or let's say they're, they, you know, they have it good. They're in the middle class or the upper middle class, and they have a grocery store right down the street from them. And they have a few kids and a husband or a wife, and all they can do is... Afford the week's meals in commodity vegetables. What do you what is the solution for this? This is the ultimate problem. The only thing accessible and affordable to the majority of the population's income, these families can only afford commodity-based Produce and people like you and other local farmers who need the support, who are continuing to be pushed out and driven out by large monster companies like Monsanto and imported vegetables from all over the world. How in the world can we help these families? get the vegetables that they need to be buying how can we help these families to get the vegetables that are not only affordable but nutritionally dense and actually worth the vegetable intake
0: well i always say that where there's a will there's a way and identifying what the problem is and identifying you know how you can change that look there's some folks that are struggling with things that i can't even pretend to understand and for me to sit here and to say to somebody that's got a, a financial crisis or some sort of a crisis that I've got the answers for them doesn't seem like I'm really in their shoes. And so I would never want to pretend that I can understand some of the, the pains and some of the struggles that they've been through. We've been broke before, we've been without, but we always ate good no matter what. I guess, you know, I can, I can think of solutions that might work for segments of this group. I don't know that it would be foolish for me to sit here and think that I would have the answers for everybody's problems out there because uh, I empathize, I sympathize with it, and I I pray for those folks that don't have a meal or don't know where they're getting that next meal. Um, If they can do a garden, I think that it's one of the absolute best things that you can do is to be able to produce some of your own food, even in small areas. It is unbelievable what you can produce in a small space um, there's a lot of information, free information that's available. If you can grow anything of your own and start and rebuild that soil that you're going to try and grow in, that is a solution. I had a friend that lived in New York City for the last 25 years, him and his wife, and it was interesting to me, and I guess I would maybe say that this was, could be potentially a way, but what they would do is that the groceries in New York City a lot of times were pretty high priced. They didn't even own a car because the parking was, the parking alone was expensive, much less the cost of the car. Once a month, they would rent a car. Now it could be that potentially a group of families could come together and pool together. But if you think about when the very best value is, is when something is in season. I am super, super critical that we should eat and allow mother nature to dictate what we eat. I've heard chefs before say, I don't know what I'm gonna put on the menu yet. The very best question that I've always had is a chef calls and says, farmer, what am I gonna put on my menu next week? That's great because you're really listening to what mother nature has to offer. And I guess how I circle that back to these families, if you can, what, what this chef and his wife would do, would rent the car and they would go to a remote area And they would buy all of their their grocery needs for the month, the toiletries and the cleaning goods and, and food, and then bring those back. And they've saved so much more than just the rent on the car for the day, because you could rent a car for like 39 bucks. But in the middle of the seasons, if you can get out to a rural community and be able to buy things in peak season, if you can visualize this, and I don't know who your listeners are, but for us. On Sundays, we tend to, that's kind of our day of rest out in the country. We try not to work on Sunday. We work hard Monday through Saturday, and on Sunday, we try and rest. So sometimes on Sunday afternoon, we'll take what we call a country ride. We get in a car, and we ride out into the country. And here's, if you can visualize, there's a picnic table. And it's got six or eight quarts of tomatoes. Now I'm not talking about just a quart. I'm talking about a quart aping. That if you <laughs> bump the quart, the tomatoes are going to fall off of the quart. And there's a can out there that says self-serve. And they're a dollar and a half a quart. Okay. And you bite into that tomato and the juice is running down your chin. And it, makes, it takes you back to a tomato that you had when you were a kid. It's got flavor. Wow. Or you go into the food desert where you go in January and you eat the tomato and it's an odd looking pink color, or maybe it has good color, but it's white on the inside. And you'd be better off to throw it away and eat the cardboard that it was shipped in. And it's $6 a pound. So yeah. I guess that the point is, is that really trying to get your, look, we're such a small part of this big world out there. If we can try and be in harmony with mother nature, mother nature will take care of us. And, and if we think about trying to go into the country areas, go into those rural areas and be able to buy, and even if you buy more than you can use and you pickle it, you can it, you freeze it, you store it up, because it's going to be far superior to anything that you can get in the dead of winter in the middle of a food desert, and you're going to pay too darn much for it. Now, that's one look, there's going to be a bunch of people that are going to say, yeah, we can't rent a car. We can't do that. We don't have, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I know that if you can grow it, if you can get out to the people that are growing it right, if you can have a connection with your farmer, if you can know where that food source is coming from and question them as how they're growing it. Are they eating it themselves? It's just, it's so important that we know where that food source is coming from. Remember what got us there? The disconnect. It became about simplicity. A grocery store in the middle of the city where it's, it's convenient, we can walk there. It's convenience, but it doesn't happen to be good. So there's, I I can't give it, I can't give the answers to everybody. I don't know, but I know that, man, I would fight like hell to try and get the product in season. You know, this time of year, we're storing up. If you think about winter vegetables, what the heck's a winter vegetable? Well, it's a vegetable that would store all winter. If you go back, Sure, not a lot of your listeners are as old as me or older, but if you go back, you know, before the 30s, a lot of folks didn't have indoor plumbing, and they may not have even had a refrigerator. Well, if you go into an old house out in the country, and you go into the basement, one room in that basement had a room that was just a dirt floor. There wasn't poured concrete in there. It was just a dirt floor. Well, that was the winter storage room. because anybody knew that if you went 56 inches deep into the ground, you stayed 56 degrees year-round, winter or summer. And so it was like refrigeration before refrigeration. So you could put vegetables in there and they would store and you could eat out of them all winter long.
1: Was that cold enough?
0: It's cold enough for a lot of things. It is. Yeah. Um, you go back even further. Before we were building houses, the Native Americans knew this and you could dig holes in the ground and go 56 inches deep you you bury the the vegetables or whatever you could in the fall and then cover that with leaves and straw and soil and during the winter you open those holes back up you get the vegetables out they're not frozen they're not rotten and you can consume and it would sustain you through the winter until the spring came anything that we can capture at its peak, look, I'm not trying to promote cheap, but when something's in peak season, it's usually at its best flavor and it's at its lowest price because when it's more available, when we're harvesting, the biggest cost to a farmer is the labor, the labor to get it picked. And so when it's plentiful, it picks more cheap, more cheaply, it's more, that doesn't sound right, but it's more efficient to be able to pick it when there's a lot of cucumbers on the row, when there's only a few that it costs more. So we're, beans or beets or pickles or anything. When it's more abundant, it picks more efficiently and that that pricing flows through and the price is lower when the quality is the highest. It's unlike anything else. That's why the produce business is so tough, Erica. If, if you decide you're gonna pay $150,000 for a car, you know you're gonna pretty much get a darn good car. If you got $15,000 to spend on a car, you know what you're gonna get. Right. It's so different you know, in the agricultural world, when it's the most abundant, it's the most available and the and uh, the price is the lowest. And when it's the least available, it's, it's, of course, higher. So, and lower quality.
1: Doesn't that kind of show you that Mother Nature really does speak for itself? I mean, I mean, you talked about these overflowing quarts of tomatoes that were just Mouth watering and salty and 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 just full of umami and you can't explain the flavor I mean it just goes to show you that you you go to the grocery store and you buy an heirloom tomato that might be four ninety nine per pound and it is delicious and like I said, you can't describe the flavor versus Roma, cherry, beefsteak tomatoes that you buy year round. And and people, I think people are actually used to the fact that tomatoes are kind of flavorless. They're hard. They're not ripe and tender. I mean, I hear it all the time. Oh, I don't like tomatoes. I don't like tomatoes. They're crunchy. They don't have flavor. And it's like they're not in season. Like, do you understand that? And people just don't have the education. That's the sad part.
0: Well, I think that it's that we're, look, I think that people are extremely smart and we've got more information available at our fingertips than ever before. I think that it's really about being out of touch. We're just one individual in a great big world. Mother Nature, it knows. It comes, you know, COVID is here. We have lots of tragedies, but the sun comes up every morning and the sun sets every night and the grass grows and the plants grow and Mother Nature keeps on churning. And we're just a small part of this. And I think that there's a lot of factors that have allowed us to become kind of deaf. We're so used to technology at our fingertips that we forget about the bigger picture of mother nature. And being in tune I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but if you're really in tune with your body, it'll actually tell you that you need something. And I don't know if you've ever had a craving for a beet or a Swiss chard or a spinach or a kale. Have you had that experience before, Erica?
1: I definitely, I have experienced that.
0: We have such a fast paced world and a fast paced life. And we are on the go so often that we don't slow down enough to really listen to our bodies. And I think that that's really critical. Um, I can recall reading in National Geographic about women, and these were over in Africa, and they were pregnant women, and their bodies were craving something that they were missing from their diet, and they were actually eating the dirt and that's because instinctively their bodies knew that there were minerals missing, and um, it always made an an incredible impression on me that I think. In America, our pace, how fast we're moving, how much technology is available to us, how we're always on a computer or on social media or something that we are moving so fast that we're not in tune with what our body is telling us that we need. The minerals within Swiss chard, the minerals within spinach or beets, if we can slow down and listen, and Mother Nature will, will feed us what we need, but we have to be able to listen to it. And it's a pretty deep conversation we're in right now, but it's, you know, it's, it's just, it really is amazing. If you can, if you can slow yourself down enough to listen to what, what mother nature, what your body is telling you, mother nature will feed you. Um,
1: I completely agree. And I'm not, I've never been, you know, my mother is a nurse and she's always like, Erica, take your vitamins, Erica, go to the store. I will pay for the vitamins if I have to. And I, I try my hardest and I just, I'm not a routine person. I never go to bed at the same time. I never wake up at the same time. I'm not good at taking vitamins. And so my body does rely on what I feed it. And so I think that goes with a lot of people. There are a lot of people who do take daily vitamins and maybe you don't get those cravings because you have your daily dose of what you need. But it's interesting when you're so in tune with your body And what it's telling you and what it needs, like you said, it just, you know exactly when you get those cravings, you know exactly what your body's telling you it needs. So I do find that really interesting and glad that you shared that perspective with us.
0: You know, the other side of that, Erica, is too, that I've heard a lot of adults say, oh, I hate beets. I hate Brussels sprouts. They had them as a kid and they were terrible and they haven't eaten them in 40 years. A Brussels sprout can be harvested. It takes, you know, Brussels sprout, for example, you know, it's a plant that takes about nine to 10 months to grow. You can physically harvest those Brussels sprouts earlier than we harvest them. But an interesting phenomenon happens after frost. The colder temperatures will spike the natural sugars. And it's unbelievable, the difference in the flavor of a Brussels sprout harvested after frost and one harvested so that you can fulfill the number of containers per acre that you need by picking those early and shipping them to market. The ones that have had frost on them are unbelievable and they're just an entirely different product. Or if somebody has eaten a nasty pickled beet as a kid and they've never enjoyed a beet grown right and prepared right, cooked right, and then eaten it. I've had people that have come to the Culinary Vegetable Institute here on the farm, which is a place where folks normally would come for for earth to table dinners or veg centric or veg focused dinners. And I've seen people that literally were brought to tears by eating a beet or eating something that they thought that they've hated for the last 40 years <laughs> and they eat it for the first time. Yep. And they just are so amazed that this is so good and what they've missed. So it's always fun to be able to turn somebody onto something grown right and prepared right and allowing them to get to experience that
1: it drives me crazy. Like for example, my little sister, she, you know, just recently during Thanksgiving, she was like, Oh, I hate mushrooms. I can't stand mushrooms. And it mm-hmm. just makes me cringe. Cause I'm like, Oh, mushrooms are my favorite food. Mushrooms are one of those things. It's like, it gives you, it brings you more satisfaction than any meat could possibly bring you. It's one of those things that's like, there's so many different varietals and, and there's so many things you can do with it. all it needs is something so simple, like some brown butter and salt, and it's like one of the most delicious dishes you could ever have so I'm with you there, and I also resonate with with what you said about the frost with Brussels sprouts because it's very much like wine, wouldn't you say and grapes being heavily influenced on whether or not there's a frost that is more than likely going to be what dessert wine right something that's sweeter. I find that very interesting everything is correlates to each other everything has a distinct system and a reason so oh, it's cool. absolutely yeah I mean even hear your perspective and I hope people who are listening are just mind blown because even if you do grow up in the culinary industry and you're used to working in restaurants or even if you have a culinary degree like these are things that still blow your mind because it's just not taught it just it's not something that is out there, it is, you can Google anything, but it's not something you even know to look for or to search or to research.
0: It's absolutely like ice wine. I mean, we have a spinach that we will plant and then we'll cover it with a cover, uh, cold frames, and we'll pick out of it all winter, even on a 20 degree day, if we have any sun at all, we can capture enough solar energy to grow that. We had some spinach last spring that had been frozen and thawed over 60 times. And you can't pick it frozen, obviously. It'd be just like if something froze in your refrigerator, got too cold. It becomes transparent and you have to throw it away. But if you leave it growing and wait later in the day when it thaws out, it rehydrates. And then the next night it freezes. Then the next day it thaws. And the next day it freezes. Frozen and thawed over 60 times. It tested with a thing that we call a refractometer. Any one of the listeners can buy one for about 60 bucks. They look like I have a little telescope. Do you? Yeah. They mm-hmm. look like a little telescope and you measure the
1: sugar I- content.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, this spinach was testing sweeter than a red delicious apple.
1: Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me?
0: No. No, we have a <laughs> trademark on it called ice spinach.
1: Oh, that is so cool. <laughs> that just blows my mind. I have a refractometer because I'm really interested in just a lot of business concepts and uh, you know doing what's in season and I was going to start a soda company I like that you said soda pop because earlier on because I I don't even call it soda I just call it pop but everyone is like if they're not from the mid the midwest you're like did you just call it pop I'm like yeah (laughs) and so now I'm like all right I should say soda at least I'll say soda before pop so you know I, I wanted to make fresh Fresh, um, juiced soda pop that had only natural sugars, but was carbonated. Because, as I said, I, I personally, I my body does not take artificial sugar as well. And right. so, when I drink pop, soda pop, and I, if it's like a Pepsi or a Coke or whatever it is, I'm serious. My body does not take it well, and so it just tells me okay, this isn't natural. Okay. My body doesn't like this. Our right. bodies speak to us, right? Jones, our bodies Absolutely. tell us exactly what is natural, what is good, what we need, what we shouldn't have. And so that's just really cool about um, just something that I've been in tune with. And so um, when I did want to create that uh, pop company, I had a refractometer to test the natural sugars in, sh- in fruit and the fructose was naturally high. Sure. Yeah, And so that's what's so cool. And, and ve- spinach is a vegetable. And and so that is so cool that it had a, the sugar content of a red delicious apple. So cool.
0: Well, it's, uh, we actually, you know, our team uses the refractometers. And uh, for example, like with English peas, we use the refractometer to tell us when to pick it. We test it. It's still not, the number's not high enough. We go back and test it the next day. And then when we get between a a 14 and a 16, we know that we're about peaked and it's going to start and go the other way. And we'll harvest those at that highest level. And then we'll take and plunge them into ice water to shock them and to stop it from turning to starch. Are you kidding me? No, no.
1: Oh my goodness. I did not realize you were doing such a scientific...
0: Yeah, same with carrots, the same with the beets. Absolutely. Refractometer, used to be a farmer, always carried a pocket knife. Well, we still do that, but you carry a refractometer. We're not worried about when this gets the biggest. It's interesting that we're testing some stuff off of uh, chain box stores, grocery stores, and of course those farmers are having to grow to get the highest yield, most tons per acre. So The larger it is, the higher their tonnage. Some of this stuff, the bigger it gets, the lower the number goes. And we're finding that the smaller it is, the higher the number. So microgreens, or even slightly bigger than a microgreen with broccoli, some of these are testing just off the charts with nutrient-nutrient densities. But the natural sugars are so much healthier for you than an artificial sugar or an artificial sweetener. Sweet potatoes right now, I don't know if you've tasted any of our sweet potatoes, but they're just and a Jerusalem artichoke probably has more natural sugar Mm. in it than anything any other vegetable that you can grow
1: I love a Jerusalem artichoke oh my gosh they're so earthy I think they're even more earthy than like a super earthy beet I love a Jerusalem artichoke I it's one of my favorites to kind of hone this back into what you're doing at The Chef's Garden, what would you say your philosophy of The Chef's Garden is? Like from the way your team is farming to the health and wellness and being plant-based, like what is the importance of that to you? And, and what exactly, if to the listeners who are tuning in who have never heard of The Chef's Garden, why, Farmer Lee Jones, should they look into who you are and what you're doing to, in the future, purchase produce from you?
0: Well, whether they purchase from us, whether they don't. I mean, I think that for us, why we do what we do is that, you know, life's short. And if we don't feel like we can produce something that provides value to others, then what's the point? And chefs over the last 37 years have given us a direction. And they took us under our wing when we were flat broke and we had no money, though banks wouldn't loan us any money. And they said, grow for the flavor. And, you know, they taught us the hospitality business. They taught us about service. They taught us about, you know, you say jump, we want to know how high. Mm -hmm. They gave us an opportunity. They gave us a vision. They gave us a focus and a clear-minded focus. There's a lot of people that come out, they get excited about what we're doing. And they say, well, you could do this, or you could do this, or you could do this. And, you know, going back to Jean-Louis and the European influence, and and Thomas Keller and Daniel Humm and Charlie Trotter and so many hundreds of chefs around America that have given us a unified vision to try and produce something that's meaningful with flavor. And we eat with our eyes, so we've tried to create sexy and we've tried to create delicious flavor and, and consistent food-safe product. Unfortunately, March hit and we're in survival mode like so many of the listeners out there right now. Right. We, we pivoted in March to a nationwide home delivery because we felt like it was a way to be able to provide some value to people out there. Our hearts ache for those restaurant owners, those restaurant chefs, those frontline cooks and the servers and the hospitality folks that are just reeling from this situation that we've all find ourselves in. And I mean, it, it just- It's sad, I, oh. it's so sad. I wake up in the middle of the night uh, thinking about the situation and needless to say, that's been a trickle down effect on our farm because yep. for the last 37 years, our 100% focus has been taking care of chefs. We have been fortunate that we've been able to ship to folks like Thomas Keller and Charlie Trotter, God rest his soul, and Danielle oh, Yeah.
1: And
0: John George von Grichten and mm-hmm. the ritz carltons and the Four Seasons, the St. Regis's, the... Uh, the Disney folks down in Florida, the Mandarin Oriental in Hong Kong, restaurants in Dubai, we haven't gone through middlemen. When chefs order it, we pick it and we would ship it to them.
1: That is so cool.
0: And it's literally a lot of times within 24 hours of harvesting it or plucking it from the vine to on the plate. That's why those chefs, that's part of why those chefs want that product because it's it's fresh and it shows up in the flavor. But that switch, you know, we've just, for the first time, made the product available to you. You can order it at home. Anybody can order it at home and we'll harvest it. We'll package it. We'll put it in a box and we'll ship it directly to an individual's home.
1: So like many times, Farmer Lee, you have adapted to what Mother Nature and the earth and all of the people on it. You've adapted to what we've brought to you right? So this pandemic is the new thing and you cater to just chefs, like not just chefs, but elite chefs, chefs who don't just put a million dishes on their multiple page menus, which by the way, I cannot stand like, oh my gosh, it makes no sense when you go to a restaurant and you're flipping through the menu and you're like 50 dishes here, which that scares me by the way. But, but, you know, restaurants who actually take the time to source seasonable vegetables and and cater them their menu to what's in season that's that's a beautiful thing and that's what is being a chef that is what is being a culinary trained professional and so I, I have all of the heart in the world for what you do and what you've provided for the world's top chefs and you know it's sad but at the same time I'm actually I'm happy. I want to look at the bright side of things. I do. I think we all should. I think that it, it's hard on us to just dwell on what's happening. And and I'm happy that the consumer, the person right now who's listening, who's not in the food industry, has the ability to go online to chefs-garden.com and go to home delivery and see what packages Farmer Lee Jones has available to you. And like you said, they ship directly to your door you don't have to go to the grocery store and be afraid of wearing your mask and you know touching whatever could be polluted with covid you just go and you order online and it ships your door and you can make whatever it is that is shipped to you but farmer lee jones what do you tell the consumer that this is completely new to and maybe you ship something they have no clue how to make let's say they've never seen a certain type of squash or a varietal potato or microgreens or whatever it is, what do you say to them that they don't know how to use it?
0: Well, several different things. I mean, there's millions of cookbooks out there uh, that do a great job, but Googling certainly can help. Uh, We also have a great chef at the Culinary Vegetable Institute, Chef Jamie Simpson, and he's making videos and making recipes, just chucking them out as, as fast as he can and We actually build a special website. You can go to chefs-garden.com and then go to Home Delivery or Farmer Jones Farm. And we're loading those videos right on that site. And you can pull those up. And it's not that we're trying to tell you how to cook, but it might inspire you to see how a vegetable is being cooked. And then add your own flair to it and have fun. Cooking's fun. Have fun. It's the thing that we do three times a day, every day. Might as well have fun at it. But I think that, you know, that the idea is is that we can eat something that's good for us, but it can also be good to eat as well. And so we really try and be very mindful of the mixes that we put in the boxes to make sure that we are putting healthy combinations there. Um, We believe that food as medicine, we actually even have a trademark on pharmacy, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y. Oh,
1: that's cool. (laughs) uh,
0: That really is kind of the future as we become a plant-based, plant-forward future. And it is inevitable for the environment that we become plant-centric and plant-focused, plant-forward. It's really inevitable uh, that we move that direction. Look, I'm a meat-eater as well. I'm not sitting here saying that I'm gonna stop eating my meat, but it is gonna mean smaller portions of meat or poultry or fish, and it is gonna mean larger portions of plant-based. For on Adria, visited the farm from El Bulli. So
1: cool. When with, was Charlie,
0: that? with Charlie Trotter. It's been a good 10 years ago now. So cool. And they flew in and uh, they toured the farm. And Charlie flew some of his staff in the night before. And some of our Cleveland chefs even came in and helped. And we did a 12 course lunch after the farm tour. But Ferran spoke to us and to the team and he said, you know, unless we missed one, we've pretty much explored every species of poultry, every species of beef, every species of fish that exist in the world. But there are literally thousands of plant varieties to be explored yet. And that's where the real opportunity and where the future of cuisine yeah. is going. And it's also gonna dovetail with, it really helps support the environment. Totally. Um, you know, and so we plant enough acres to be able to have, be carbon neutral. You know, they say plant trees, and forests are one of those things that sequester carbon. But um, I'm sure that the listeners may or may not be aware, but if you plant an acre of cover crops that's also harvesting the sun's energy, it sequesters carbon at 10 to 100 times more than an acre of forest. So um, there are opportunities for corporations that wanna become carbon neutral. We will plant acres for them to be able to sequester Carbon, and we're also looking for corporations that want to lower healthcare costs. We believe that we can lower one of the biggest expenses, as you know, this 3,000% increase in all of these diseases is driving healthcare costs higher and higher and higher, and it's a very expensive thing for companies. We believe that we can lower their healthcare costs if they will supply a box of vegetables to each of their employees each month or every two weeks. That will lower the healthcare costs for them. It's a far cheaper way to do it, and you support the environment, and you support small family farms.
1: I love that. I absolutely love that. How in the world could something like that be implemented? How can that start?
0: Well, I think that we should have a talk show, Erica. And
1: I think it's, <laughs> let's do I
0: think, it. I think. Well, we just did right here mm-hmm. on your show today. You it go. just started. <laughs> so, I, um, I'm
1: a fan already.
0: Well, <laughs> let's, let's
1: let's create the merch
0: there we go happy to have your help on it we, you know we've got I'm to all create for the you. future i am
1: all for you i this is definitely something i'm passionate about not just because it's like oh you're doing things the right way but this is the future of the the earth this is the future of our bodies you know as time progresses and goes on our technology evolves we become smarter we become more advanced we're going to live longer But we still have the ability to get ahead of the game doing things the right way, not just relying on technology to keep our bodies alive, you know, when we're on a ventilator. But like, how can we prevent ourselves from being on a ventilator when it is something that was from years of abuse of what we ate and what we put in our bodies? You know what I mean?
0: I do. I agree 100%.
1: You know, this is all really heavy stuff. I hope that who's listening isn't overwhelmed, but that you're inspired. One more thing that I kind of want to talk to about with you, Farmer Lee, that's huh. kind of a little bit more of a serious topic is people, I think they may be familiar with the term, but they, might, they may not know really what it means. And they may confuse this term with this term, but that is sustainability, the concept of sustainability versus what is organic? And you are not classified as an organic farm. Is that correct? Correct. Right. right. And so that may, right away, being uninformed, I'm not saying you're dumb, just like Farmer really Lee said earlier, a lot of people are smart. And you know, we give you credit for that. But you just may be uninformed that not being organic does not mean you're bad. So, sustainability. Why is it so important to you, Chef Farmerly, and our future to be sustainable? What does it even mean? And how does it have an impact on the taste and flavor of your produce? And and also, why are you not organic? And why doesn't it matter that you're not? Like, Can we kind of help our listeners understand the difference between the two and that just because you're not certified organic doesn't mean that you're not and kind of mediate that misunderstanding there?
0: Wow. I mean, what you've asked is just a huge mouthful on another, you know, days. A whole other podcast. (laughs) Yeah, another whole podcast. Um, I guess, first of all, I would just tell you that our opinions are that we're not willing to pay for certification to try and do things the right way. Uh, to be organic, you have to pay. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe in that. I think that there is a misconception that uh, if you're not organic, that it's not good. If you're organic, that it is good.
1: Exactly. What, That's what I'm saying.
0: What organic means is that it's the elimination of chemicals from the equation. Uh, I was with a friend, uh, Elliot Coleman, in Maine, and he believes that you've bastardized organic Uh, certification by allowing hydroponic, because it's not a natural way to grow. We don't believe in the use of hydroponic. We believe in growing in soil. Elliot Coleman believes in growing in soil. He believes that if you're growing hydroponic, then it's not organic. So there's a lot of differences of opinion. To grow organic means, or if something's labeled organic, it means that certain chemicals have not been used to grow the product. That does not speak to nutrition or nutritional density. I would put our products up against any organic farm in the world and test them nutritionally or for nutritional density, and I would love to have that comparison. Organic versus inorganic just means the elimination of chemical. Without chemical does not necessarily make something nutritious. It just means that there's nothing on it that's going to hurt you. It doesn't mean that there's anything in it that's going to help you. What we're really trying to do is grow beyond organic. And we actually have a a trademark on beyond organic. And that's to take the concepts that are used for organic to to grow products healthy in a healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people, to grow them in a healthy way, but also to be able to provide nutrition and nutritional density in that product. Uh, Sustainable is kind of a Uh, word. It's a buzzword. If we think about it and break it down, sustain, it means to sustain. It means that you're going to put food in your body to sustain you to tomorrow or to the next day. Okay. The better inputs we put in, the longer we sustain. Sustain is kind of one of those buzzwords that's now become sort of yesterday's news. We don't want to just sustain. We want to be regenerative. It used to be in the farming world that the, the thing was what a farmer wanted to leave his land in better condition for future generations than the last. And that's a noble cause. And that's one of our goals is that when we die, that the land is in better condition to be able to produce an ongoing sustainable methodology of farming and producing healthy food for people. But we want it to be regenerative, not just to sustain, not just to hang on until we get to tomorrow. Sustain is just sort of like, Do what you've got to do to be able to get to the next day or to the next month or to the next year. Regenerative means that you're doing what you can to be able to expand and to increase the nutrients. And and it's not just about the, the soil. It's about the people. How can we take care of the people, the team members, the family members that work on these farms so that they're paid at a level? of pay that they can send their children to schools of their choice and to be able to have the homes of their choice and to be able to have the automobiles of their choice and to live their lives so that they want to stay and work on the farm. There was such a mass exodus of farms or farmers that said, I'm not going to work this hard for this little pay. The farmers could go out into the other world and get a, a job that paid them far more what they were worth than if they stayed and worked on the farm. Because it was a lot of, it is, it's a lot of hard, long hours for a low pay. Right. But so regenerative means that we create an environment where good quality, smart people wanna come and work on the farm or on any farm throughout America or through the world. So it has to be regenerative. It's what can we do to be able to create a full circle situation that's good for the land, it's good for the people, it's good for the environment. And really in a nutshell, that's our goal is what can we do to be able to help the environment? What can we do to help the people? And what can we do to take care of the land and be regenerative about it rather than just sustainable? Rather than just to hang on, we can create something that can blossom and mature and to grow and to be here for future generations to come beyond when we can even imagine.
1: I love it. That just definitely speaks to the true testament of who you are and what you believe in and what you're trying to do to change the future. And hey, I commend you. So you're doing a fantastic job. And I hope that more and more people become familiar with, you know, it's not just about Farmer Lee Jones. It's not just about this person or that person. Wouldn't you agree that it's about the community of of multiple people who are doing the right thing.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Right? We vote with our dollars. We vote with the choices we make. We vote by who we support. And you might think it doesn't make a difference and it really does. You know, get to a farmer's market, grow your own, buy from you know somebody that you know where that connection is and that they're trying to do things the right way.
1: Exactly. You know,
0: this is a tough year. It's a tough year for all the listeners. It's a tough year for everybody out there, and it's not going to be done at the end of the year. It's going to be another tough year, and we haven't even seen the worst of it yet. The financial issues, the psychological issues, the depression, the alcoholism, a lot of things are going to come with this, and we've got to fight our way through it. There is hope. There's going to be light at the end of the tunnel. Stay focused on the things that are the most important and support those things that are the most important. It is a community and we will, the only way we will get through this is working together on a unified visions.
1: Amen to that. I totally, I'm for you there. And, you know, I'm going to be a little bit of a, a devil's advocate here, okay? I'm going to ask you a question that I think a lot of people are going to be wondering. So Farmer Lee, you are offering a direct-to-consumer produce, like a box of produce that's going to be shipped to the doorstep and people don't have to worry about going to the grocery store. But don't you think people are wondering, like, does that defeat the purpose of sustainability farming, sustainable farming?
0: Well, I love that question. You know, if you think about a traditional distribution system, product that's coming out of Mexico or a third world country where labor's paid a dollar and a half to $2 a day, to harvest the product, it's cheaper for them to ship it um, from some place like that than it is to pay the labor here. Um, we choose to, to be able to pay our team members a fair wage, and provide health care, and uh, sick days, and vacation days, and personal days, and bonus opportunities, and to try and create a regenerative situation. We have a thousand years of um, experience on the Chef's Garden Farm team. That's not a thousand years of experience at another farm. That's a thousand years here on this farm, and that's because we want to take care of them and keep them here because they're valuable. But if we talk about a traditional distribution system where product's coming out of Mexico, then it goes into a warehouse in California, and then it's packed and sorted and, sh- and sized and boxed. And then it's shipped, let's say back to New York, New Jersey, Buffalo, Philadelphia, any place, any major city. And then it sits in a warehouse until a grocery store orders it. And then it goes to that grocery store. And in the minimum situation, you're looking at 10 days, more like two weeks before the uh, individual consumer receives that product. You think about the travel, the distribution, the refrigeration of all of that product. And it takes two weeks for it to get there, let alone the nutrient. Every day that a product's harvested, it loses part of its nutritional value. But you look about the carbon footprint of that, it's so much more than call us, put an order in on the farm. We harvest it here in America, in Ohio, and we ship it direct. We do what we call planting cover crops to be able to neutralize our carbon footprint by planting cover crops to be able to offset. It's, I had a chef that was in upstate New York. I was invited to go speak at the Culinary Institute of America.
1: Cool Great, park.
0: great, great yep. And I love that trip along the uh, the river there. I got on a train at Grand Central Station and rode up the river and I got off and uh had a chef friend that had been buying from me. He'd been on the farm, had brought several of his culinary team here each year. And his boss said, you're no longer going to be able to buy from chef's garden. You're going to buy everything local from here on out. Well, the chef kind of blew him out for several months. And the manager came in and sat down with him and said, look, I'm going to fire you if you keep buying from these guys. I want you to buy everything from the local guy from here on out. We're going to support local. So I was on my way up and I got off the train a couple stops early and uh, stopped to see my friend and I uh, told him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm really curious. I want to go in your cooler and take a look and see all this local stuff. He said, yep, everything now is coming from my local purveyor. Well, I had a, uh, I carry a little spiral notepad in my pocket and a pen and I went in and the beans were from Peru. Uh,
1: are you serious
0: yeah the asparagus was from i believe uh ecuador somewhere i wrote down this it was all coming from a local purveyor but he had expanded his carbon footprint by tenfold because now he was getting the product from all these other countries but it was a local purveyor so there's this whole misnomer about local in many cases unless you know the person and i keep saying this i've said it several times in our podcast, know the producer. I think that there's an argument to be had and we did the math on it and we actually were a lower carbon footprint for him. We're 560 miles from him, from our farm to his back door. And we lowered the footprint by him getting the product from us rather than getting it from a local purveyor who was bringing the product in from all over the world because it was cheaper than getting it from the farmer. You're going to pay the farmer now or you're going to pay the doctor later, we like to say.
1: I mean, that makes sense. You know, people think that local just means, oh, this person is local to the area. Who knows where they're getting their stuff from? Let's just give a local farmer the benefit of the doubt, okay? Let's say there is a local farmer in upstate New York, and this chef is getting all their produce from this local farmer. But even then, is the quality of the produce as pristine as highly nutritional on the farm being treated carefully you could easily be local but that, that doesn't mean anything
0: well and it doesn't but let's say I would have been thrilled if I would have gone in that cooler and it was all local from local farms because there's some amazing farms in upstate New York doing a terrific job right. if the cooler was not full of those local farmers product it was full of stuff shipped in from all over the world and they added to the carbon footprint. Now, here, this manager was probably trying to do the right thing, but he really hadn't taken a look at it. There's some tremendous growers all over this country. They're doing a great job. And I don't want to minimize or, or say anything against them. Support them. If there's, somebody, if there's a restaurant and they can get something local, get it. Absolutely. There's, there's plenty of room for all of us. Look, one of the things that chefs need is consistent supply. And as hard as we try, we can't always have everything that a chef has on a menu every day. And if they can get it from their local guy, but they can't get it from them today, then get it from us. But don't get it from a third world country where you're adding to the carbon footprint. So there's, a, but you know, and your argument is I've got a neighbor and he's a great neighbor. Um, you're supposed to have a, a pest application license to apply chemicals. And he has never fully understood the English language and he never was able to get a test, get one of the certifications and he will, he will uh, buy. uh, Pesticide from anybody that will sell it to him under the table and he doesn't understand how to use it or apply it. Now, as good of a neighbor as he is, I wouldn't feed his apples to my horses, because I'm concerned with the application now it's local. It's within, it's within a half a mile of us and it's local, but it, so it does go to that point. It can be local and it can be grown the wrong way. But for the most part, if you're talking to these people and you ask some questions, how are you farming? You can find out, you, you're gonna have a good feeling. And there are a lot of really great farmers in this country that are doing a really good job. And so I'm not trying to pit myself against them We're just a small family farm out here trying to survive, just like a a lot of other small family farms. Support small family farms where you know where the product is being grown. Are they taking good care of the team members on that farm? Because that's critically important. And are they doing it the right way?
1: I totally agree with you. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you're in a battle with yourself. Do I support local farmer who i'm not really sure if is doing everything the right way or do i seek out a small family farm who is indefinitely doing things the right way from the seed to the soil to uh the cultivation so i think again that's just in educating yourself and knowing what's out there and what your options are and that's where i support people like farmer lee jones And I highly encourage you to check him out and local farmers near you. So with that said, Farmer Lee Jones, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I want to give you an opportunity to say anything else that you felt that you didn't get to say to our listeners.
0: Well, I really appreciate you having me on Erica. It's been absolutely a delight. Um, You know, I got to work with my father for 50 years, and um, really a just a great, great blessing. And uh, you know, this Thanksgiving was difficult because it's the first time in my lifetime that I didn't sit down and give thanks with my father for all the blessings of getting to work together. They certainly haven't been all financial, but getting to work together as a family is beyond belief the joy Mm -hmm. that we've shared from that but one of the things last things that he said and even in a letter that we found after he was passed that he had written take care of each other we've got to work together i hope that this unprecedented time that we're all struggling through right now we don't see it for another hundred years i hope no future generation ever has to see it. Mm. But we're going to get through this together. Take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. and Let's get through this together. Thank you so much for the opportunity. If you want to follow me on Instagram, Farmer Lee Jones, on Facebook, Farmer Lee Jones. And uh, we'd love to send you some fresh, healthy vegetables to your home. Just uh, come check us out. God bless you all and take care of each other.
1: Hey, quick update, everyone. I actually have a 5% discount code you can use if you purchase off of farmerjonesfarm.com. If you use my name, Erica Carcella, that's spelled E-R-I-K-A-C-A-R-S-E-L-L-A, you can get 5% off of your entire order anytime you purchase. To get a quick recap on this episode, or to read a little bit of my quirky writing, I also wrote a special blog for Farmer Lee because I adore him so much. You can also go to foodsplainer.com and check out that blog. It's called Pay the Farmer Now or Pay the Doctor Later. The blog is also in the show notes. I also wanted to introduce my Patreon account, which you can find the link in the show notes to donate. You know, as a content creator, we, we work a lot harder than people may think and it takes a lot of time and effort for editing and graphic design and all sorts of things. So if you could just donate maybe three to five dollars a month, that would help me so much to get some help editing these episodes and to give you more and better content. And as always, my food FoodSplainers, if you like what you're hearing here, please give a five-star review. Whether that's on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on, that would greatly help us out. And subscribe to follow along. Yeehaw!